Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Dean Sincentis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, here with my co-host and Hall of Famer, Steve Flink. Steve, uh, the Sunshine Double has now concluded. Um, great tennis all around. I know you loved it. I loved it. Can't wait to talk about it. Um, a lot to discuss, no? Oh, yeah. Again, just as was the case in Indian Wells, both the men and the women were no pun intended, they both were shining. And I, I, I thought it was a, a, a terrific tournament and nice conclusion for the men. And now we head out onto the clay. Yeah. And before we um, recap, you know, what with the tennis in Miami Open, you know, it was interesting yesterday and yesterday being Sunday, we're recording this Monday evening. Um, you know, I, I, I hemmed and hawed on even if I wanted to talk about this, but because it's current and I think there was a lot of banter on Twitter yesterday of what happened. So I want to address it. Um, I have some thoughts on what happened between the conflicting times of the Miami open and this exhibition pickleball event. This just wasn't any exhibition pickleball event. It had four tennis legends in it. Um, and this is me speaking on behalf of myself. I'm going to give you an opportunity to add any thoughts if you wish. This is just my own thoughts on it. And, and I think, um, you know, me being a true lover of the sport of tennis, which I am, I'm uh, tried and true tennis 100% of the way. I think there's times that tennis um, can step on their own two feet at times. And I think yesterday may have been another example uh, of that with the conflicting times of both the, the, the Masters 1000 final and this, uh, this pickleball event. Um, I, I think the two teams from the pickleball, the whatever, the PR team, the planners, whatever, of the pickleball event and the Miami Open should have got together. They may have gotten together. I don't know any of the inside details, but I think they needed to work that time conflict out. This is not me saying James Blake and the Miami Open needed to bend over backwards at all for this exhibition pickleball event. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, it's a Masters 1000 event. It's in the schedule. They can do whatever they want. I think they just needed to hopefully try to collaborate so we didn't have this conflict. Um, again, this pickle pickleball event had four tennis legends and Johnny Mack, Michael Chang, Andre Agassi, Andy Roddick playing at the same time as a Masters 1000 men's final in the same state and not too far away, Steve, both events, same state, and not too far away. And the conflict in time yesterday made people have to choose and they, and it made tennis people have to choose because there were plenty of tennis people at that pickleball event, either attending in person or watching it on TV. This just wasn't pickleball fans. There were tennis fans that had to make a choice on what to watch on TV or what to attend in person. And I'm just focused on yesterday. I'm not comparing tennis and pickleball. That's a separate conversation. Um, I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about what happened yesterday and it's not like ESPN brought out their C, D, or E team, right? They brought out Chris Fowler and Patrick McEnroe, two guests that we've had on our podcast. We have great respect for. We enjoy them immensely. You have two conflicting events that you're making tennis people choose. And that should not happen. That just should not happen. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, obviously, the argument on uh, others, the argument on the other side would be it's pickleball versus tennis. But again, you don't want that conflict either. Seems like it could easily have been resolved. You had a one p.m. start for the Medvedev final against Sinner, which which was, of course, it's such an 
an established great masters 1000 event versus this pickleball exhibition bringing together tennis superstars the four that you mentioned and and it was very entertaining particularly the doubles i didn't enjoy the singles as much as the doubles but this seems to me was very avoidable why not put the people knew well in advance that the men's final in Miami barring rain was going to start at one. So why not have the pickleball come on much later in the afternoon? You still could, I would think, get good ratings. It's inexplicable to me. And I know that none of those tennis players wanted, who participated in the pickleball had any intention of harming, uh, you know, doing harm to their sport. Right. You know, not far away in a very important event. This was eminent, eminently avoidable in my view. And and I, I, I don't think the onus was on James Blake. I think no. the pickleball people should have been over backwards at ESPN to make sure that uh, Miami was not harmed. I I agree with those thoughts. And and again, for those, I, I didn't know Steve's, what Steve was going to say. Steve didn't know what I was going to say. Um, it was just something that I felt we wanted to address because there was a lot of banter back and forth um, on social media about it. So, and I agree hundred percent with what you just said, Steve, why would Johnny Mack, Andy Roddick, Andre Agassi, or Michael Chang want to harm yeah. their own sport that made them who they are? They wouldn't want to. No, do not at all. Not at all. They didn't want to. And McEnroe, in fact, was enjoying the matches in the middle of the week in Miami. You saw him out there. I don't know how many days he came out, but he was certainly out there one night. And again, Andy Roddick, Andy does a lot of great, commentary for the tennis channel mainly from his home but you know in the pre-match studio sessions he's terrific and his love of the game just comes through as 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 clearly as ever and obviously chang you know they're very respectful of the sport so that there's no way that they wanted to be uh caught up in this kind of a controversy and and it hopefully you know if, if we have this kind of a situation again you know that the networks, the tournaments, everybody can get together and say, Let, let's see if we can work this out. Because I, it really surprised me uh, uh, tremendously. Yeah, well, I'm glad we are in agreement. I think a lot of people are also in agreement with our with our stance on it. And if people are in disagreement, that's that makes for good conversation. So with that, let's go to what we really want to talk about. And that's the tennis, because it was a great event. And um I want to start with someone who we were so eager to see play and she was playing so well. Um, the injury bug, she just can't step away from it. And it's, and it's Bianca Andreescu. She played well at Indian Wells. She lost to Iga Sviatek in two, two competitive sets. She goes to Miami. She beats Emma Raducanu. She beats Maria Sakri in a great match. I think it was over three hours, if not just about three hours. Sophia Kennan, she beats. And then... The injury bug again hurts her ankle, bad tears, two ligaments. I don't know. I feel so, so bad for Steve because you know the tennis that this person can play and the level at which she can play it. No, she's such an inventive, creative player. She really stands out from the pack and how she plays the game. It's not all power, but she takes the ball early, got a lot of variation in her game, mixes up her shots beautifully. She's a very heady player. And but even as far back as 19, 2019, when she won Indian Wells and then capped her summer by beating Serena Williams to win the U.S. Open, even that season, she, you could see her constantly taped up fighting injuries. She's never been able to effectively for prolonged periods uh, stay injury free, which is such a shame because she has so much to offer the game. 
But I just think, unfortunately, she's far more injury prone than most of her rivals are. Not that they don't get their share of injuries as well. So, but it was a shame for the reasons you cited. She was coming back into form and playing as well as she had in a very, very long time. And now who knows how long she's going to be out. And you could see the extreme disappointment on her face and the tears and the fans lamenting it as well. It was really a, a very poignant moment. And, you know, she's in the middle of a really competitive match and you think that maybe she can win this one, who knows. But now her season is disrupted once again. Uh, and, and you know, it's, it's interesting. She plays such a physical um, style of tennis. It's not like she's five foot two and she's tiny. She's not all, she's, she's built, she's built very strong. She's built perfectly for the style that she wants to play. And she just, it's, uh, I, again, so, distinctive, David. so it's bad. A, it's such a distinctive style. And, 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 and the way it's a great thing for the women's game to have her in the mix. And if she's healthy, she would be a perennial top five player and she'd be contending for more majors. And that may yet be the case. But I just hope that this pattern can can end and that she can stay healthy for much longer stretches. And I, I don't doubt that she trains hard and she's very professional. It looks to me like she's just exceedingly unlucky. Yeah. Well, let's let's hope she can get back on the court soon and she can stay injury free because she's had to deal with way too many of these injuries at her young stage of career. So, Bianca, we're 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 wishing you best wishes and, and get healthy soon. You mentioned Andy Roddick and his commentary. I want to bring up a name, Chris Eubanks, because he's also done some commentary on Tennis Channel, does a great job on it. Um, Forget the commentary for a bit. He had quite a week in Miami, and he's now in the top 100. He's actually ranked number 85 today being Monday evening. Um, What a week Chris had. Yeah, terrific week, and he just got on a roll, and found himself in the quarterfinals at this event, losing a very, and you and I had sort of compared notes prior to the quarter with Medvedev. And I think, you know, you thought maybe, maybe he can get it into some tie breaks. He very nearly did in the second set. I didn't think it was possible. I thought Medvedev's returns would be too much, but Eubanks played a terrific second set. He actually played great up till three, two in the first set too. I said the rain delay hurt him. They hurt him a lot. And Medvedev took control of the match, ran out that set, went up four, two in the second. But Eubanks got it back to, and he was at five all, and 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 he fended off a couple of match points and looked like he was going to hold and get it into a tiebreak, and that, but finally got broken in that twelfth game. Still, no, very encouraging tournament. The most, uh, the most impressive performance of his career thus far at, at any event of note. And now, as you said, to be eighty-five, that's going to make a diff- big difference in where he gets in, and that should set him up for the, you know, especially for going uh, when we get to Wimbledon where I think he can do some damage and, and, and over the summer on the hardcore event. So I, I, I'm hoping that we don't have to hear too much from him in the booth. And I don't mean that disrespectfully because <laughs> I want to see him on the court. Yeah. Well said. And I think um, he, he has the game where he talks so much about belief, right? Getting that top 100. That's like so much of tennis is just having that belief that you belong there. And he talked about that a couple of times, like now I feel like I belong there. And now that he's in the top 100, let's see where he can go. Can he get to top 50? Will he keep going or will there be a few dips? You know, he goes on the clay court. He was just, I was just listening to a pod earlier today that he had with Noah Rubin and Mike Cation. 
and they were talking about whether he plays clay events or maybe he plays some other hardcore events and then they were debating that but um I, from I, I don't know him personally from what I've heard from him on TV what I've heard from others I mean just a great guy and I think he's got I think we're all rooting for him we are we are all rooting for Chris and hopefully like you said he can uh, continue this upward swing where where he's going yeah he's very he's very likable on the air and he's very uh same same thought for how he conducts himself on the court the player I saw on the court reminded me that I had the same kind of sense of self and confidence but not arrogant no no arrogance whatsoever and he i think he he uh medvedev was i think very impressed and and kind of relieved to get that match over with he didn't want it going three yeah yeah all right let's go into the latter rounds uh of the men's side we had the quarters with carlos um carlos alcaraz facing taylor fritz i know a lot of people were looking forward to that match um taylor just had slow starts very early in both sets. I mean, I remember that. I remember now the awful first game in the second set, but he got broken early in the match. too. he got a break back, but those yeah, slow but starts are killers. killers. They are, but you would have thought David, given the slow start he had in the first set that he wouldn't have allowed it to happen because in the first set, he goes down immediately to love and they had a marathon game and he finally held on, which that got his teeth into the contest because very well could have been two breaks down and in, terrible trouble and the set ended up being a 6-4 set and he played really quite well the rest of the set I expected a much better start for him in the second set and that was yes. one of his worst games to start the second set he, it, it was an irrevocable blow to him he just did not recover from that he was he had he was showering Alcaraz understandably with praise after the match and and I, I get it but I think he needs to be self-critical too because he did not show the best he didn't show us his, his the the top of the line uh, Taylor Fritz that we we've, we've come to know and respect so much. It was not a good performance from him. I think I think he would agree with that assessment with what you just said. And I think the next time they do play, he Carlos may still win, but I think it will be a different performance from Taylor in there. But it's interesting, Dave, because he, he took that thumping, you could say, and he's he's such an honorable guy. I think he is honest. He's very honest with himself. And he lost a sinner in Indian Wells. And here are these two young guys. And, and I, he needs to take stock, not that he should be dismayed or, or losing faith in himself, but he's going to have to deal with them a lot in the next several years. And, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see if, how much he learned from either of those losses. And he's got a great team around him with Paul Anacone uh -huh. and Michael Russell. He's got the right people around him. And I mean, he's already, you know, the past year, the slams, you wish he would do a little bit better on the last few slams, but um, he's had, he's, he's been doing an incredible, incredible well, work on the also, court. Just a quick final comment on him. What I do like about him is that he's, he bounces back from devastating losses. Uh, you know, it, 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 we've seen it time and again. So I don't doubt that and, and these weren't, weren't necessarily devastating. They were disappointing. But I, I have no doubt that he'll come around and, and he, he always seems to be able to turn the corner and get going again. Then we had the semifinal and you mentioned center, you know, Carlos Alcaraz facing Yannick Sinner. And between me and Chicago, I was dodging tornadoes left and right on Friday night. So I was watching. Uh, I, I saw the first set, which I thought Sinner should have won. I thought Sinner outplayed Alcaraz. I think Sinner very close to winning this match in straight sets. That said, I think the shot making from both guys was out of this world. And we saw, you know, everyone on Twitter was like, was that the best point ever was played? I mean, there were, there were a few, one, one point was outrageous. Um, but 
but that's the, the, the points underneath that were still amazing. Um, the shot making was incredible. That said, I think center should have won that match in straight sets. Well, a good argument could be made. Of course, what would never, where I agree with you is I think he should, should have won the first set for sure. Then we don't know how Carlos might have responded. So it wasn't going to be automatic that he runs the match up, but it would have made life a lot easier. So let's just review it quickly here. He led 4-1 in that first set. Blazing start from Sinner. Just out hitting Carlos on the baseline, serving big and taking his back end up the line as much as possible. It was a really impressive start. And then he looked like he might break him again. He had 15-30, missed an easy overhead. And eventually Carlos held on in a tough, long game. Then it was in the next game, the point of the year that you were kind of referring to. And that's when Sinner's serving at He's, he's serving still up 4-2, love 15 down. It's 25 shots. He was drawn in by a drop shot. Looked like Carlos had him pass. Somehow, as he retreated, Sinner flicked the half volley back deep to stay in the point. Then they rallied some more. Carlos, it's a big forehand of the Sinner backhand who stabs it short cross court. Then Carlos comes in on a slice backhand and looks like he's got Sinner cold. And Sinner rolls the backhand cross court pass for a winner. And the crowd which is on their feet. It was an astounding point. That was, you should do radio. That was incredible. You did the <laughs> shot by shot. That was awesome. <laughs> now that point was out of this world. Uh, incredible. But um, center, center beats him. He's the only one, Steve, to beat Carlos on all three surfaces. He's beaten him on well, Miami. Yeah. Now go ahead. Miami on hard, Wimbledon yeah. and, and Umag. Umag on clay. I'm probably mispronouncing. Yeah. No, it's impressive. What I laugh about that stat, though, what makes me laugh is not many people have necessarily played Carlos on all three surfaces because there's so little grass court tennis. But it's it, it's uh, on a more serious level. It is it shows you that he can compete with him anytime. And let's not forget, he had a match point at the U.S. Open against Carlos before losing that epic that went over five hours. It was the key to Carlos winning the U.S. Open because Sinner had the match point in the fourth set before losing in five. So. He definitely, we, we, we definitely have a rivalry on our hands. And I think they're going to go back and forth a lot. But, uh, but I agree with you. Sinner, you know, I would have felt badly for him, frankly, if he hadn't won the match. Now, in, on the sympathy side with Carlos, he fell and hurt his hand a little bit in the second side, a little bit of an issue there, and definitely was cramping early in the third. But he, he seemed to get over the cramps, and he picked his game up. And suddenly, you know, he made Sinner work hard from – after going down two love in that third set, he, he buckled down and made it competitive again before Sinner eventually pulled away and won the last set 6-2. I absolutely love that contest. And, you know, uh, you, you said the Sinner-Alcaraz rivalry. You throw in Daniil Medvedev. That's a fun trio. Medvedev now, who lost to Carlos in the final at Indian Wells, doesn't face Carlos in the final in Miami. He faces Yannick Sinner, maybe a little bit of a tired Yannick Sinner from that semi versus Carlos. Um, well, you know what? Thoughts on the, give me your thoughts quick, on that final. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. That's interesting that you said that. Medvedev, who is a, is, is a surprisingly, he's, he can be very sensitive about his opponents and, and respectful. And he watched that match, and it, that was his view that perhaps Sinner was exhausted because that was such a strenuous, you know high octane match that, you know, maybe he hadn't recovered. We'll never know because Sinner said he woke up Sunday, wasn't feeling well. It's not clear to me there was necessarily what happened on Friday night. It might've been, but the unfortunate thing was he certainly wasn't able to play at the, 
at nearly the same level he had against Carlos, against someone he'd never beaten before. This is now six losses he's taken against Medvedev. But Medvedev, I think, was also relieved. I don't think he's afraid of Carlos, but he had come off a three and two loss to, to Alcaraz in that Indian Wells final. So, yes, maybe he would have liked another crack, but I think he was more comfortable considering how much tennis he's played in these last six weeks. Five tournaments, made the finals of all of them. He's won four of the five. He won 24 out of 25 matches in that span. But so that has to, there's a lot of wear and tear. I think he has great respect for Sinner, but when he had such an unblemished record against him and had never been beaten by him, maybe it was more to his liking than having to, Turn, try to turn the tables on Carlos. No, uh, I mean, no argument for me. And I, I, are you, do you foresee the three of them? Just, is it, is it the three of them? And then there's the rest of the pack shortly behind well, them? Or do you obviously, think there's going to be a lot of mix and match here? Yeah, no, those three, but let's, let's remember it's for the next couple of years with Novak. So then you, you have the kind of the better, you have everything going for you that way. Novak, who's on his way to, he's going to be 36 soon in, in May. And then you have Medvedev, who's 27. And then these two young guys who are 21 and 19. I think there's so many possibilities in that foursome for terrific contests over the next two, three years, while Djokovic is still is still competing at the top levels of the game before he retires. So, so I, are, you, I, are you comfortable saying like the Tsitsipas, the Zverevs, the guys right beneath them, they're not quite at that level of the center Alcaraz Medvedev level yet? Well, I, I don't want to say that with certainty. I mean, Sitsipas, he's, he's, we've seen him in the finals of the French two years ago, in losing to Novak in five after winning the first two sets, then losing to Novak in the finals of the Australian. He's right year. there. Yeah, he's ranked three. I don't think he's the third best player right now, and he's suffering from a, sho- a nailing okay. shoulder. But um, I don't know. I think he, I, I admire his work ethic. I think he'll, he's, he's going to keep trying hard. And Zarev is, Physically, he's a beast. He's such a big guy, you know, and he moves beautifully for his size, just like Medvedev does. Their matches amaze me when you see their court coverage for guys of that size at 6'6 six, six in that range. So I guess maybe, I don't want to say that definitively, but they're going to have their work cut out for them to keep up with these guys. I might be a little more optimistic, oddly, about Zarev than I am about Tsitsipas, for whatever the reasons. Hmm. It'll be interesting. And um, now we go on to the clay. There's also a guy named Rafa Nadal that is training right now. We don't know at what you know level or his health, if he's 100% yet. But if you can get a healthy Rafa, you get a Novak, you get a Carlos, you get a healthy uh, Rafa. I mean, you get guys, it, it should be an interesting clay court swing and there's so many tournaments that build up i think as a top player you have to schedule yourself very carefully because it's just clay court tennis at the highest level is grueling as is right there's so many tournaments leading up to the french open i think you have to really gather around your team and be strategic about the tournaments you play and if you go very far maybe you win two in a row and you're scheduled for that third one you take a pass um you want They're to be fresh to put, for this one. Yeah, you put your finger on it. That that's they have to be willing to do that. Now, Rafa has, as he's gotten older, unlike the Rafa, the exuberant Rafa of his, you know, early twenties, would skip nothing. And, and yeah. understandably, at that age, he could do that. He came to understand that that wasn't going to work if he was going to look out for the long run. And he's done an increasingly 
a masterful job of scheduling himself and knowing when to pull out. Sometimes it's difficult. Let's take Medvedev right now. He plays these five tournaments and, and he, he's in the finals of all of them. He wins four. He's played a ton of tennis since mid-February. Now he, he mentioned that he's got a few little minor commitments. He has to go somewhere. And he mentioned that he's only going to have maybe two days of practice for Monte Carlo. So he's bracing himself for a possible that maybe it won't go that well. Well, I, my, my advice to him would be almost, why do you need to start in Monte Carlo? I mean, yes, the tour wants you to play the Masters 1000s. That's, it's, it's expected of them. But given what he's been through, I think Medvedev, as an example, would be wise to say, no, I'll start up after Monte Carlo because I've been, I've, I've, I need more time to get acclimated on the clay and I've just played way too much tennis. Mm. They have to be able to willing it, but those are tough decisions to make, but they're crucial. They were absolutely crucial decisions. Well, I mean, we're not going to talk about uh, Roland Garros yet because we still got quite a bit of tennis before that. But just a quick word on Rafa, David. Sorry, because you mentioned him and I didn't get to him. He has made there was there were some expectations a while back that he would definitely start in in Monte Carlo, and then I saw some comments from him online where he wasn't saying he definitely would or would not play. He was leaving it open. Again, that, that would be very wise of him to just be certain that when he comes back, he's ready to play and he doesn't re-injure himself. So that'll be interesting to see whether Rafa shows up in Monte Carlo and whether he can get on a roll on the clay and, and not necessarily win every title, but get a lot of matches in so, and come into Roland Garros in a better frame of mind than he did a year ago when he won his 14th title totally against the odds, given that he walked off the court against Shapovalov in having hurting badly after that loss in Rome. And then, and then, you know, he's, he's out and he's getting injections every day during Roland Garros. And yet he wins it. You know, he wins Roland Garros despite that handicap. And uh, I don't think he wants to have to do it that way again. You know, the foot was really bad then. We don't know how his hip is responding now, his upper leg. So he's got to be, he's got to be very careful how he schedules himself on the way to Roland Garros. Agreed. Well said. Uh, what else? We done? Anything else we need to chat about? Any no, parting I... thoughts on the Sunshine Double? What you liked? What you didn't like? What you're looking forward to? No, I'm just. It just. It, it, it's just mouthwatering to think about the clay court campaign after we see this great resurgence of Medvedev. Just a quick word about Medvedev before we go. I mean, what did we really think was going to happen with him? It's not that it was an embarrassing loss to Corda in the third round of the Australian Open. Corda. By the way, be- I don't think he's played a match since he lost no, he in hasn't. Australia, Sebi Corda. He hasn't. But my point is that Corda had nearly beaten Novak in the finals of Adelaide, had a match point. So he was hot right then. But still, Medvedev lost in straight sets. And it was kind of a blow to him having been in the finals of that tournament the previous two years and having squandered a two-set lead against Rafa uh, last year. So... At that stage, given what he'd done last year, post Australian Open, things were looking uh, weren't looking terribly promising for for Daniel. I thought it would take him a while to get back to the top of his game. What he's done in this stretch is just magnificent. So he may do a little better. He's never won a clay court event, uh, but he may fare better this time just because of all the success he had on the hard. 
He yeah. might enjoy himself a little bit more, and I'm interested to see how he does on the clay. I think Djokovic will be better prepared on the clay than he's ever been, given that he couldn't come to Miami and Indian Wells, and he's had the chance to start practicing early on the clay. Uh, he's just salivating, Steve. Yeah. He is salivating, ready to go. <laughs> and we know how and we know how good he is on the clay. It's no accident he's won a couple of French, but what people forget are the five or six Italians, and you know, he's done so well. He's won Monte Carlo a couple of times. This guy is a great clay court player, much better than people realize. And to me, I mean, for instance, I once had the debate with some of my friends, Federer versus Djokovic on clay. To me, it's it's not close because Roger had a fantastic record in Paris and he lost four finals to, to Novak, but he didn't have the results that Novak has had. Four finals to Rafa, you mean? Four finals to Rafa, you mean? Four finals to Rafa, yeah. Roger lost to Rafa, sorry, four times in Roland Garros. So that's very impressive. And then he eventually won Roland Garros. He won it in 2009 so he had one title and four finals against uh, against rafa but roger didn't have the clay court record outside of roland garros that novak has had novak's record in in these other masters 1000s is spectacular yeah we shall see a lot of tennis uh already in 2023 and a lot more ahead we're not even halfway through so uh all you tennis fans get well rested and get ready for the uh the, the red clay it should be a lot of fun thanks steve all right thank you david